This is NBR's Live from the Hive, a compilation of the week's top stories straight out of the beehive. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. The incoming national-led government has promised to do a lot in its first 100 days in office. To discuss that, we're joined by NBR's political editor, Brent Edwards. So, Brent, a full agenda till the end of the year. Well, a full agenda till the end of the year and beyond in terms of what it says it wants to do in its first 100 days. I mean, a whole host of things from scrapping the Auckland Regional um, mm. Fuel Tax to, uh, you know, scrapping fair pay agreements, 90-day uh, trials, and introducing a whole load of um, new legislation as well as, you know, dumping a number of Labor's reforms which um, it opposes. Will they get it all done? Look, there, there will be there'll be a question mark over that. Actually, I mean, you know, so it's 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 quite common for political parties and opposition and campaigns to talk about their hundred days of action. Most parties sort of do it. it I mean, it sounds great. It's a good soundbite. Oh, gee, this government's going to come in and bang do things. Um, but you know, for instance, they've got at least ten new bills that they're talking about introducing. That that's not an easy process. I mean, you know the. Cabinet has to meet for a start. So you have, have to have a government formed, so we're still waiting on that. Cabinet will then have to meet, and Cabinet will then have to agree on each of those initiatives and instruct then uh, policy to be made. So it'll it, that will come back as policy. They'll agree to legislation. They'll agree, then they'll have to get it drafted. Um, and, and that's not necessarily a quick or easy process again, because, you know, you want to get it right. I mean, I think the last thing that probably the National Party or the incoming Prime Minister, Christopher Luxon, wants is to rush legislation into the House and then have it come back, oh, you've got to fix it, because it's, you know... So, mm. and, and then once it's drafted, of course, the Cabinet then has to look at it again and approve it, and therefore then it's ready to... And through all of that, it's required to, under the Cabinet manual, to, to consult on the legislation, you know, obviously among its own caucus... Uh, given it'll be a coalition, it's coalition partners, um, that might be a little bit more problematic perhaps with New Zealand First maybe, who yeah. knows. Uh, it really ne- it has to have a number of departments have a look at it, for instance the Ministry of Justice to see that legislation meets the Bill of Rights or make a comment on that. So so the, there's a lot of work involved. It's not just, oh, we've got a great idea, let's write a few lines and this is the legislation. So um, do that in 100 days, particularly when there's that Christmas New Year break that will we'll break it up. Um, it, 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 it might not necessarily manage to get all of that done in that first 100 days. So no rest for the wicked over Christmas New Year then? No, no, no. They'll be working pretty hard. And I think Christopher Luxon's already said that um, he expects Parliament to sit a bit later um, in the year. So, so normally it, it um, rises in about the middle of December and sort of a good week or week and a half, two weeks before Christmas. I mean, it may well sit possibly right up until... Um, the week before Christmas, and that it will come back earlier. Um, I mean, this year it didn't start sitting until after Waitangi Day, but um, so it might come back maybe middle of January, as early as that. Um, certainly if they want to try and hope to meet that 100-day sort of action target, that they will probably need to do that. Um, so there'll be a few MPs who'll probably be a bit uh, miffed by that, um, but as I think... Christopher Luxon has said, most other people, they, they knock off at Christmas and then they come back in the new year. They don't wait until late January or February before they go back to work, most people. so. Let's digest some of the things that could be done in 100 days and may become more difficult. So you're thinking the water reforms? 
Well, the water reforms, um, they're basically saying that they're just going to repeal the legislation for a start. So that, I suppose that could be done readily, quickly. It, it's new legislation that they're going to introduce. For instance, they you know, they have to introduce legislation to give change the mandate for the Reserve Bank back sure. to that single focus. Mm. I mean, I suppose that m- might, might be relatively straightforward because there was legislation before which had that sort of focus rather than adding in the employment um, dimension. But there are things around getting tough on law, um, for instance, banning gang patches, that sort of thing. Um, you know, on the surface, it looks pretty easy, but, you know, people will have want to have a pretty good look at that because those have all sorts of implications, possibly under the Bill of Rights, for instance, um, that kind of thing. So, so there'll be a lot of work to be done to get the legislation right. I mean, you know, the worst thing that would probably happen for nationalists to pass legislation, for instance, around to get tough on crime approach they're taking and then have some gang challenge it in the courts or what have you and sort of, you know. So, yeah, it's there's, there's quite a lot of work to be done. It's, you, know, you know, And the legislative process, while New Zealand is known as one of the fastest in the West kind of thing, it's still a fairly long um, and elaborate process to get legislation through, drafted and then in a position to introduce it. There is pressure on them to deliver, though. Quite there, there, there is pressure on them to deliver. I mean, and Christopher Luxon has kind of run the line that, you know, he's a guy that can get things done, he's outcomes-focused. But but at the same time, it wouldn't be great for him if, in an effort to meet that self-imposed deadline, they got some things wrong. Uh, and we've seen that with the, pre, with the Labor, uh, outgoing Labor government where, you know, you have to bring legislation back and fix it because maybe it was rushed and there's some embarrassing glitch that you have to fix up later. Um, and National might be prepared to do that, to, to, to rush it through and, and, and bother the consequences and deal with it later possibly. But um, I would think that they would rather make sure that they did it properly so that, you know, that can fit with that line that, you know, that they know how to do things, you know, because they've always run the line that they'll be a much more competent government mm. than the Labour government. So you, you would imagine that will be playing on their mind. OK, Brent Edwards, thank you. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. The Green Party achieved one of its best results in this month's election, but finds itself out of government. To talk about whether it can have any influence on climate change policy, I'm joined by Greens co-leader and outgoing climate change minister, James Shaw. Look, in the previous national-led government, the Green Party, while in opposition, you still did actually manage to work on some initiatives related to climate change. Are you hopeful or do you plan to try and do the same sort of thing in this coming term of government? Do you mean the memorandum of understanding between the key government and the... Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean that. So there were kind of three components to that memorandum of understanding. One was the um, the home insulation scheme, which you know has has done very well. I mean that's been very very successful, um, and and has made you know quite a dent on uh, kind of home energy use and health and you know a whole bunch of measures. The second was actually the national cycleway. Um, people forget about that. Kevin Haig had quite a lot to do with uh, that, um, and and then the third was near around toxins, uh, which kind of didn't. It sort of sputtered out, didn't didn't kind of work so well. So you could see something like that, um, I guess. That that didn't get drawn up until about six months after the key government had kind of, you know, gotten into place and 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 um, kind of worked out what it what it was doing. So, you know, there's always the potential for that. 
Um, the incoming government, you know, of course, has got ACT and New Zealand first, and I can't see that they would have much of an appetite to work with the Greens on anything. So, um, you know, I think it'll have it'll depend entirely on what the shape of that government is and and how much. Uh, national is able to how much freedom national has uh, to be able to operate um, around around some of those uh, issues. Presumably, if, if national had a bit of freedom, I mean, it might be in its interest to work with you on some of those initiatives that the Greens and maybe New Zealand First wouldn't support. But yeah, yes, it, it would. I mean, you know, Christopher Luxon uh, has um, been very clear during the course of the election campaign. He wants to deliver on the twenty fifty. Uh, target. He wants to deliver on the nationally determined contribution on the Paris Agreement up to 2030. Um, he's, you know, a big supporter of the Climate Change Commission, um, the Emissions Trading Scheme, that kind of institutional framework. And he has also said he's not going to negotiate those things with ACT or New Zealand First. Um, and uh, I guess we'll have to see uh, about how successful he is in in that. You know, because if if you're in an arrangement where you need all three parties to agree on something, uh, then you know, Act in New Zealand first can just say, "Well, we're not going to agree to that," right? So, um, at the same time, uh, you know, for example, the Act want party want to get rid of the Climate Change Commission, repeal the Zero Carbon Act, kind of get rid of all of that institutional framework, um, but they won't be able to do that if National don't agree to that. So, you might just end up in this kind of deadlock where you can't make much progress, but you also don't necessarily go massively backwards. But but, but we what, just won't we just won't know until we see the shape of the new government. Yeah, so and that will depend on how prescriptive or not their coalition agreement yeah. is. Yeah, that's right. But yeah. but do you, I mean they've said they're going to scrap obviously some of these programs in terms of the um, clean car discount. Yeah, but uh, all of those parties are agreed on that, right? Yeah. So they'll be able to do that because they've yeah, all said sure. that they want to do so, that. But I'm just thinking about. Given that approach from all the parties, including from National, yeah. are there any areas that you see where the Green Party could perhaps um, promote or support National on other initiatives that, that might help uh, decarbonisation? Uh, well, sure, in theory, um, but that will depend both on what National wants to do uh, and whether they have the ability within their governing arrangements to reach out to the Greens and say, do you want to work together on this? What, what about their electrification programme? And they are saying they are mm. all keen on going renewable energy. Yeah. I mean, is there, are there areas there that you could support them on? Well, we, I mean, the, the electrification is critical. Like, we absolutely need to do that. And, and they're taking a very supply-side-led approach, which is, you know, to focus heavily on the construction of renewable electricity, um, if that works, then it will have the it should have the effect of um, both creating the capacity that we need as we switch away from fossil fuels, but also helping to lower electricity prices. And if that happens, then that'll accelerate the rate of the transition because one of the necessary ingredients is abundant, cheap, uh, renewable electricity, right? Which you get when you build wind and solar. So if they can do that, that's well and good. Um, there are, however, um, the market. Uh, is heavily geared towards a demand-led 
approach, right, which is that it will build new capacity when there is sufficient demand. So you've got a bit of a chicken and egg uh, problem there as well, which is that you actually also need to stimulate demand, otherwise the industry won't build any additional well, supply. Well, we've had that KPMG paper out yeah. this week, and, and that's one of the arguments seems to be coming from the sector, is that the way the sector's set up and regulated, it kind of promotes this kind of on-time yes, delivery. That's right. And that there needs to be some changes. It and does. On-time always means they're behind time. Yeah, well, it, it does in the world that we're now living. Right, that may have been appropriate, you know, during the Bradford reforms and kind of the the, in, the creation of the energy market as we currently know it. Um, but what we're trying to do now is actually build at least slightly ahead of demand, so that you've so that um, industries are able to when to kind of with confidence say, okay, we're going to decommission this you know, fossil fuel-powered plant and replace it with an electric version. We, know, we need to know that there is electricity available. Um, and so uh, that's, that's the kind of conundrum that you've got to be able to deal with is that everybody's looking at each other going, well, you go first. No, you go first, right? Um, actually, we all kind of need to be working together on this. But that paper, though, also concluded that the, the target of 100% renewable electricity generation by 2030 was unrealistic and more of a problem, do you? Well, the I mean, you would have heard um, Megan Woods and her capacity has always talked about that being, you know, an aspirational target because I, I think pretty much everybody agrees that you can get to 97%, um, uh, I mean, not, not easily, but um, that that there's that, that's a sort of an economically rational kind of point. Um, the last 3% become kind of more challenging. Um, and, and so... You know, I, I'm kind of sceptical about whether that argument is holds as true today as it did when it was first being kind of, you know, talked about because the price of uh, solar and wind has come down so much. Um, and and what, what are the kind of basic assumptions behind uh, that, you know, in, in terms of that kind of last last 3%? Um, uh, do you... Um, you know, is the extent to which that is uh, kind of um, essentially industry that has a kind of vested interest in maintaining that that last three percent, or is it built around the assumptions around the existing energy market rather than the future energy market? The other component of that is that that's the last three percent of the current grid, but actually we need one hundred and seventy percent of the current grid. So we've got to go, we've got to shoot way past one hundred percent. Right, and and the and all of the additional has got to be has got to be renewable. So I, I mean I get that there is a, a kind of a you know a conundrum in, in there that we've got, that we've got to deal with. But the, there's a much much bigger picture here, which is that we need to um, not quite double, but we need to massively scale up the total amount of generation in this country in order to deal with the electrification of industry, the electrification of our transport fleet, and to to deal with population growth. And we need to do all of it with renewables. I mean, I mean, National argues that you know they want to put in place these fast track processes to, yes. to ensure that you get all of that renewable energy. Well, those fast track processes already place. exist. Yeah, they already exist. Yeah. Do you think is there yeah. anything more they can do that would, or is that? Well, they think so. But you, you don't think. Well, I, d I mean, I, I don't know what the, you know, I don't know how they're going to translate what they said in the campaign into, you know, into government. Um, that's or, any different to what's in place now. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, there might be some. It, it's kind of hard 
to know until you actually see the work program, you know, because something that National and Labor tend to do when they get into government is relabel things and go, see, we're doing it differently, yeah. you know, and, and so some of it might just be posturing. Um, some of it might be substantive, uh, but I, I can't comment on that because I, I haven't seen the detail. But do you remain hopeful that the sort of impetus that's been delivered, I think, in the last six years since you've been Climate Change Minister, that that will be maintained? I don't know that it will be maintained, but I, I don't think that we will go into reverse, and I think that that is because the momentum in the economy is now fundamentally pointed in a different direction from where it was six years ago. You know, that the transition is now occurring. Um, and and really, the question is one around pace and scale rather than whether or not. You do have in this new government two parties that fundamentally want to reverse direction. Um, um, but we won't know until we see the coalition agreements, the speech from the throne, and ultimately about six months from now, what the kind of detailed work program is uh, across government. So I think... You know, like it's pretty predictable, for example, uh, if they do what they've promised and they get rid of the clean car discount, that makes EVs more expensive and it makes twin cab utes cheaper. You can anticipate that what that will lead to is a decline in EV sales and an increase in twin cab utes and that that will therefore lead to an increase in transport emissions. Um, ultimately, however, the move towards the electrification of transport, it's going to continue. So it's going to slow down for a while. They could well blow through the emissions budget as a result of that policy change. Um, but kind of fundamentally, you know, the world by about 2030 isn't going to be manufacturing internal combustion engine vehicles anymore. You know, so, so you know, it may mean that New Zealand misses our targets, uh, um, but the kind of the overall direction ha has an air of inevitability to it now that it didn't have uh, in, in kind of recent history. James Shaw, thank you for your time. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. A KPMG report has questioned whether the target of 100% renewable electricity generation by 2030 is realistic. I'm joined by KPMG partner and energy industry co-leader Greg Bishop. Why, I mean, first of all, you've, you've talked to, I think, 30 leaders within the energy sector. Why the, this view that the, the target of 100% is not realistic? Look, we don't refer to it in the report, but there's a, it's often talked about as being the energy trilemma. So it's, and the three legs of the tripod are security of supply, affordability and decarbonisation. And it's very easy to get any two of those three, but it's very difficult to get all three. So to fully decarbonise um, by 2030 in the electricity system, you have to compromise on either security of supply or affordability. It's very hard to get all three. And, and that was what the leaders told us. They thought that that was uh, a target like that was, was letting perfection get in the way of really good. Okay, so that, you know, yeah, yeah. You, you allow a little bit, I guess, of presumably fossil fuels still to be used, but an effort to ensure that you retain the affordability and, and the um, security of supply, that too much at risk if you went with a purist approach. Is that the...? Uh, yes, yes, exactly. So you could completely eliminate carbon from the system, but it would come at a horrific cost, and that was what the Interim uh, uh, Climate Change Commission told us as well. So, yeah. 
it's a widely held view out there. I think the only dissenting voice was uh, the previous government. Do you agree that targets, or do they agree that targets should be set? Because presumably if you don't have some sort of target, mm. you won't improve in terms, of the, uh, you know, in terms of the use of renewable electricity. Well, we do already, of course, and it's enshrined in law. It's the net zero by 2050. So 2030 yep. is just a step on the way through. And the thing I think that needs to be remembered here is just the sheer scale of the build that we need to do to get to 2050. So to give you an idea of, of what that might mean, just between, between now and 2030, to, to meet the roadmap to 2050, we need to build the equivalent of six Manapori power stations over the next seven years. That's essentially a Manapori power station every year. And then we need to continue that kind of build for the 20 years following that. And I think that then comes back to some other issues raised in the report around the regulatory environment, which seems to be the view of those people you've talked to has led to more uncertainty around the confidence to invest in that sort of um, generation. Is that? That, that is right, yeah. So confidence in two aspects. Con confidence in terms of building new uh, thermal peaking power stations just to help us deal with the, with, with the hump in the, uh, in the peak demand without having to overbuild renewables. And secondly, just getting the renewables built, um, the changes made to the Resource Management Act. Um, we heard that they were unhelpful uh, and that a change back would be good. So do they think it's just, just a change back to the old RMA or...? Um, there was mixed views on that. One reasonably strong voice said that they were opposed to a wholesale new law because it would take a couple of years for people to understand what the new boundaries were and really nothing would happen for two years. So some changes to the old, but certainly not, not a complete new law like we've, like we've currently got. I mean, I guess put it into political context, we've got a new government, incoming government, national-led government, not yet in place, but national has talked about scrapping the RMA reform legislation that Labor put through, going back to the old, but introducing some sort of fast-track mechanism, particularly for sorts of renewable energy. Is, does that seem to meet what people are saying? Are there concerns? I think that would be a big help as well. Yeah, and the other thing is we heard from quite a few as they pointed to the uh, Crown-led ultra-fast broadband rollout and said that that was potentially a good model for the energy industry as well. It also talks about the need for, rather than high aspiration, an energy strategy. But what does that strategy look like? Um, well, it was the previous government started, they released sort of seven documents uh, not long before the election and around about the time that we were undertaking these interviews. Uh, and the intention, I think, as the country is to have an energy strategy. We don't have one yet. They released some consultation documents that MB's working on. But it includes things like what's the future of the gas industry look like so people can invest with certainty? Uh, do we still have gas out to 2050 or is it gone by 2030? Because these sorts of things affect investment decisions. And in terms of, you know, we're going to get changes now, of course, uh, with a new government. But if you look at the political environment, presumably we will get a another change of government or two or three before 2050 who might have different approaches. I mean, in that political environment, how, how does the industry feel confident about if there's 
repeated change in terms of emphasis on how to try and reduce emissions? Yeah, that's a very good point, and it is completely unhelpful. As we say in the report, invest, uh, you know, businesses need stability and understand what, what the landscape looks like to make these investment decisions, which in some cases, you know, last out to 30 years or more. So, you know, cross-party joined-up support on this would be very helpful for businesses. I mean, there's also quite clear criticism within the report from um, obviously those energy sector leaders around the uh, the policy of subsidising for things like solar panels on roofs or for people switching to EVs. And I think the point being made is that that generally benefits wealthy people because those on lower incomes, even with the subsidy, can't afford to do it. So presumably the industry would be just very happy to see all those subsidies just scrapped altogether. Yeah, I'm not sure it's necessarily an industry matter. I think there's a broader social question here uh, that the government needs needs to address because you know, if you take the view that the per unit price of electricity is going to increase and there was a report um, commissioned by the industry from the Boston Consulting Group, it was uh, released about a year ago now, uh, it forecast increasing per unit prices for electricity but matched or in some cases more than matched by fuel savings costs from fossil fuels. Now unfortunately, you know, those that are least able to afford the new renewable um, energy options for themselves, like electric cars, will be forced to run fossil fuel cars, and they'll, they'll have the they'll suffer the increased cost of electricity, but not get the corresponding set off from reduction of fossil fuel costs. There was real concern, which I share as well, that this is just likely to uh, increase the gap. How how do you deal with that gap then? Well, that's something I think that. It really is a redistribution of wealth, I, th I think. So if you look at it from that perspective, it's, it's probably a government matter to think about. Yep. You know, there so need to be some kind of relief, I think, yeah. So do you think there's plenty in this report for the incoming government to consider as it sort of, I guess, fine-tunes its, its policies around reducing emissions? Yeah, well, never before have we had a report like this where we talk to 30 leaders in the business sector across all walks of life. So these are, you know, we interviewed people who generated electricity, those who used it. We interviewed the, the largest energy consumers in New Zealand, which is Methanex, New Zealand Steel and New Zealand Aluminium Smelters with TY Point. Uh, Microsoft as well, for the use of data centres. We interviewed Spark. We interviewed all the, um, the distribution companies, Transpower, uh, the larger end of town, Vector and um, Powerco, and at the smaller end, North Power and, and West Power. And, and we we heard some consistent things from across the industry, those who generated power to those who shipped it around the country to those who used it. So, you know, never before have we had, I think, 30 people put their views on what the energy industry could or should look like in 2030. Greg Bishop, thank you for your time. You're welcome, thank you. And that's been this week's Live from the Hive. Thanks for listening.